if you have a Bible, please turn to John chapter 17. John 17. We're in a, a series called Life with God, the second half of the book of John. Um, we uh, really, Jesus pulls away from the crowd, gets away with his disciples. Uh, the pace of the entire book slows down a ton. If you need a Bible, by the way, raise your hand. We'll get you a Bible. If you need a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. John 17. Um, the, the pace of the book slows down in the middle of John, and Jesus focuses on uh, teaching his disciples uh, what it will be like when he's gone, because he's about to go to the cross and leave them. And he says this peculiar thing, that it's better that I go away, because if I go away, the Spirit of God will be released from the Father, and the Spirit of God, God's Spirit, will live in us. So Jesus will be with us and in us through his Spirit. So it's better that I go away because I ha I'm with you now. And Jesus took on full humanity, so he's with his disciples, and he's at one place at one time with these people. And he goes, one day, soon, I'm going to leave you, I'm going to give you my spirit, and this thing is going to go viral. It's going to go all over the world, and my spirit will be in you, and I will be, in essence, I will be everywhere all over the world. It's a beautiful plan. This is Jesus' plan. In John 17, Jesus, Jesus' prayer, this is the longest recorded prayer we have of Jesus. It's called the High Priestly Prayer. It is beautiful. It is amazing. It is, like, it's so hard to teach through because it's just, I just feel like you should read it and just go away and be with Jesus after you read this. It's so good. But Jesus is praying. He's talking to the Father here. And today I want to talk through, uh, teach through chapter, I mean, uh, verses 20 through 26. And I want to look at how Jesus starts to pray for us. When I first read this as a young Christian, I think I was maybe in my late teens or early 20s, I read this, this sentence and I seriously tripped out. Like, oh my gosh, Jesus foresaw that I would be reading this and he was praying for me. It's, it's insane. He prays for us. And I'll be completely honest, um, this whole thing is about Jesus praying to bring us into the life of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, life of God. And that's what he's praying and I feel like I'm, I'm not teaching this out of, like, um, great strength today. Like, I've done this, guys. I've been here. I've been in this. And let me tell you how it is. I, I'm teaching this out of, like, I really want this, and I don't feel like I'm in this right now. However, Jesus prays for me. That's cool, right? So you might not feel like it. You're like, when I read this, I don't feel this way at all. The cool thing is that Jesus is like, I'm, but I'm, I'm praying that for you. And Jesus typically gets what he prays for. So he's praying this for us. So let's read this with uh, uh, maybe some encouragement today. Verse 26, or verse 20, sorry. My prayer is not for them alone. He's speaking of his disciples, right? I, my, my prayer is not for the disciples alone, meaning the 12. Look, look at this next sentence. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Who's he praying for? Us. It's remarkable. I pray for them. I pray for Reality San Francisco. That all of them may be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so they may be brought into complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and I have loved them even as you love me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am 
and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I may, myself may be in them. I also want to read to you what Peter wrote in 2 Peter about being brought into this life of God. From the Message Bible, it says this. Everything, 1 Peter, or 2 Peter chapter 1, everything that goes into a life of pleasing God has been miraculously given to us by getting to know personally and intimately the one who invited us to God. The best invitation we ever received. We were also given absolutely terrific promises to pass on to you. Your tickets to participation in the life of God after you turned your back on the world corrupted by lust. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you this morning for your grace and your nearness in our lives. I pray now that you would, um, I pray that you would begin to pray this prayer over us, Lord. Like you have before, that you would do it even now by your spirit. That you would pray, you would pray over us that we'd be one, that we'd be brought into you, into the Father, into your love, into the very heart of the Trinity. That through that you would transform us, that you would change us, that you would make us love like you love God. And that love would turn into unity. That our unity would be great here in our community groups, in our church, and then in, through our church and in our church, through the other churches in the city and through the other churches in the city and the state and the state, the nation, the nation, the world, Lord. Make us one, God. And that's what I pray. I just pray exactly what you prayed, Lord. And would you honor that prayer? And would that prayer, would, may we grow and progress in that prayer today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This last week um, was the series finale of Mad Men. And I won't give away how it ends. So if you're like, la, 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 I won't give away how it ends. But I'll just say it's nothing like Breaking Bad. I'll just say that. The show's creator, uh, Matthew Weiner, um, hasn't said much about the finale, the series finale. But he did open up about Don, Don's character, the main character in uh, Mad Men. Um, and he, he said about his character throughout the whole series that he's, he's most like, like us, how most of us feel. This is why we've resonated deeply with this anti-hero. We feel like he feels most of the time. And we go through life feeling disconnected like Don does, even though a lot of us, especially in the West, are rather successful people. We're all rather successful like Don is, but we all feel disconnected. He said in an interview at the New York Public Library this last week, he said, there's this general feeling of alienation among men of that time, speaking of in the 50s and 60s. Even if they're not veterans, the alienation that was created by success, political racial, racial tension, the technology, and he says this, which I think is what's happening again right now, the isolation, meaning they're going to crack. I don't think there's enough empathy in the world right now. He's... he's talking about this to explain Don's character, to explain like this whole series into the final episode, like you people just can't take it, even though it feels very successful to live in this life. Even though you might have everything that you think you want, there's this feeling of isolation because of success, because of racial tension, technology, there's this isolation. These feelings of being unloved or incapable of receiving love. These feelings of being isolated or alienated. These feelings of being disconnected. 
in our Western world of success pressures and performance anxiety and our technological advances where we can be everywhere and nowhere at the same time, we all feel these. And this is why we resonate so deeply with this character. We feel these. And these feelings, these ways in which we live into the world affect how we see the world, how we show up to the world, how we respond in the world, and how we respond to other people. Our isolated, disconnected, and alienated feelings can lead us to, to things that we are not proud of. They lead us to cheap imitations for imi intimacy. We feel disconnected, and so we serial date, or we casually hook up with people, or the, we're just the person who's in love with being in love all the time. Or we're married and we feel completely disconnected or isolated from our spouse. And therefore, we do all these other things as cheap imitations, whether it's pour ourselves into our work or pour ourselves into, like, internet pornography. Whatever it is, we just feel so isolated. And so we do these things that we know, in the end, we're not proud of. There's cheap substitutes for intimacy. They can lead to substance abuse, also depicted in Madman. Because some substances can take the edge off, let's be honest. Some substances that we use can take the edge off, and others can make you feel like you're a superhuman when you know you're not. Marilyn Robinson's, uh, she's a, a novelist, a writer. She wrote a companion novel, novel to her Pulitzer Prize winning book, Gilead, called Home. In Home, she writes this. In destitution, even a feeling or purpose... A human being is more hauntingly human and vulnerable to kindness because there is a sense that things should be otherwise. And then the thought of what is wanting and what alleviation would be and how the soul could be put at ease, restored, at home. But the soul finds its own home if ever it has a home at all. This alienation, this searching for a true home could be called what the human struggle is all about, this exile that we feel. And this is the whole premise of home. It's like the prodigal son sort of novel. It's like we all feel isolated from home and we all feel exiled and we all want back in. We all want to be loved or feel loved. We all live, we feel like we live east of Eden or like paradise is lost. And these feelings and emotions can't be written off as simply feelings and emotions. They are needs. These are deep human needs. They're creaturely needs that we have. And these needs of feeling at home, these needs of being connected, these needs of intimacy, these needs that we have are at the heart of Jesus' high priestly prayer. Like he knows that we have these needs. He's walked with humanity. He's taken on flesh himself. The thing that he grieves the most and is most heartbroken about the cross is broken fellowship with the Father. He knows what it's like to live in intimacy, in oneness with the Father. And that, that being broken off is the scariest thing imaginable. Us being isolated is the scariest thing imaginable. So the, that the heart of Jesus' high priestly prayer is this reconnection. Is that we would be connected to the Father. E.M. Bounds, uh, who a century ago wrote extensively on prayer. And his works are compiled by in this giant book that I've been trying to work through for the last 12 years called The Complete Works of Ian Bounds on Prayer. It's huge, right? In there he says this. In the high priestly prayer, Jesus places us in the arms of the Father, on the chest of the Father, and in the heart of his Father. And this is what Jesus does. He, Jesus knows. I mean, Jesus moves us right into the heart of God. Think of it like this. Jesus is light and life. We learned that in John 1. 
In him was life, and in him was light, and the light was the light of all mankind. Jesus is the light and the life of the world, and he knows what true life and what true light is. And so because he knows that, he wants to connect us to that as well. And so his high priestly prayer is life and light is found inside this union and communion and unity with God. That's where life is found. That's where light is found. That's where truth is found. It's found in unity and communion being brought into this dynamic, pulsating life of God. And Jesus' final prayer with his disciples, he's asking the Father to connect us to that light and life. Father, would you connect them? Would you take, and he's praying for us. This is so amazing. Would you take Dave and place him right into our intimacy? Would you place him right into the hot spot of our oneness? Would you grab this person and that person and this church and that church and would you pull them right into the heart, our heart, the thing that we have going since eternity, that mutual love and submission and joy, all that, that intimacy that we have, let's, let's bring them into this. And how does Jesus pray for us in this prayer? He prays like this. Jesus prays that we would be brought into the life of God, that we would be brought into the Father, Son, and Spirit. And what is this like? This is being brought into the Trinitarian life of God. What is that like? Theologian Cornelius Plantinga, um, I quote him often when we talk about sin. He's written a great book on sin. But he wrote this about um, the life of God or the, 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 the Trinity. He says, the Bible says that the Father, the Son, or the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit glorify one another. That means the persons within God exalt commune with and defer to one another. Each divine person um, harbors the other at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the others. God's interior life therefore overflows with self-giving love for others. This is the life of God and God created the world, Genesis 1 and 2, out of this love. And he set us up and he made us in his image to reflect his love. And he said, I'm going to set you up in my image and I want you to be fruitful and multiply the earth or subdue the earth. Be fruitful, multiply and subdue the earth. I want you to take my image, this life, pulsating life of God made out of love, mutual submission. I want you to take it and I want you to fill the earth with my glory. Of course, sin into the world, but that's, we know that. That was a couple weeks ago. Jesus prays that we find our home in that quote that was on the screen a second ago. Jesus prays that we find our home in that. He's like, I pray that you would find your home there in that. He knows that this is true life. He knows this is what we're really after. And he wants us to be brought into this Trinitarian life and community. So look again at our text. Look again. Open your Bibles back up to John 17. If you write in your Bibles, I know some of you are like, oh my gosh. I would never write in my Bible. It's okay. You can't, okay? Permission from your pastor to write in your Bible. But if you don't, that's cool. Just remember this. If you have those, like, that photographic memory. Look at this. Jesus says, I pray that all of them may be one, Father. Okay, so this is unity. God, make them one. And we're like, yes, God, make us one. But he, he defines it. Look what he says. He goes, just as you are in me and I am in you. So what he's truly praying is that not that he's not necessarily praying specifically for like God just make them unified. He's saying would you bring them into us. That's how they're going to be unified. Bring them into us. 
that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so they may be brought into complete unity. It rhymes, so it has to be true. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So what, if you look at this, Jesus is really talking about, Father, bring them into what we have. Bring them into the love that you've given me, I've given to them, but now they're sensing this love and they've been brought into this love. Make them one the same way that you and I are one. And you're going to do that, Father, by bringing them into us. Jesus is praying. This is his last like this is one of his last prayers before he goes to the cross and he's praying that you and I would be brought into God. And why? Why are we brought into God? Why does, why does Jesus bring us into the life of God? Why does he pray this? Two things that I want to point out. The first is communication and the second is transformation. The first is communication and the second is transformation. First, communication. Did you notice that when we start, when you read John 17 or even when we picked up today, you start reading. When Jesus enters into this prayer with the Father, we sense from his words that this conversation has been going on for some time. We sense that this isn't the first time that Jesus has talked to the Father. And you might think the more connected you are to God, the more you don't have to talk with God. Okay? It's kind of like a marriage or something. Like the longer we're together, the more, less we have to communicate. We just look at each other. We're like, uh-huh, uh-huh. It's, but it's not like that. Like, you think that the closer you are to God, then silence fills the room most often. And a simple ohm will do or a simple nod will do with God. Like, God, hmm? That, but that, that's not, it's not true. Jesus has been in communion with the Father for eternity. And you feel like the, at the core of their life together is conversation. The core of it. Like, you're just brought right into an ongoing conversation. What we find with Jesus is that Jesus shows us in this prayer God's desire for relationship. That God desires communication with us. That within the personhood of God is a self-giving social dynamic. A desire for community. A yearning for conversation. Have you ever given anyone the silent treatment? You're giving that to me now, aren't you? The silent treatment. It's like the worst form of punishment, right? If your parents ever gave you silent treatment or you ever gave your parents or if you're in a relationship and you give your, 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 the person you're with uh, the silent treatment, it's the worst thing. Or when you're arguing and one of you just shuts up and doesn't say anything, like you're not going to talk to me anymore? It's the worst thing. It's the most alienating feeling. When someone doesn't talk with you and then you're left to just intuit what's, what they're thinking, their body language, it's, it's torture. The silent treatment is a, is a breakdown in relationship. When there's a breach of relationship, there's brokenness, there's sin, there's something, the last thing you want to do typically is talk to the person. I don't want to talk with you. Actually, I want nothing to do with you. And the other person's like, but I want to make it right. I don't want you to make it right. I don't want you to even bring it up. I don't want to talk to you. And then I'm just going to shut off and I'm going to, I'm going to go into myself and blah, blah. And this is what we do. This is, this is how we know that conversation is so key to relationship. Um, the, bio, the way that the, the scriptures talk about this is we get this biblical picture of hiding in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve sin. And as soon as they sin, they realize they're naked. And then they hear God coming, which is a strange, I don't know what that would sound like, but they hear God coming. Like, God's, God's coming. And so they hide. It says that they hide. They literally hide from God. Like, 
I don't know if you know what that feels like. Um, they hide from God. So they're hiding. And then God, show, God comes up and says, God shows up and says, where are you? Why are you hiding from me? Where, where, where did you go? And, and they're like, well, we, we, we kind of, we're, we're, we're naked. And we thought, well, Jesus, what God does is that he doesn't like, he, they hide from him and he doesn't give them the silent treatment back. He doesn't say, hey, you know what? Fine, I don't want to talk with you anymore. You don't want to talk with me. I don't want to talk with you. He goes after them. And then he starts a conversation with them. Where are you? We were hiding. Why were you hiding? Well, we're naked. Who told you you were naked? This is conversation. God still wants it with us. And we continue to hide from God. We continue to hide from God today. We continue to give God silent treatment. And life with God, life with God is about communication. It's about being connected to him. There's a movie that came out this year or last year about the life of Stephen Hawking called The Theory of Everything, which actually had some strong overtones of spirituality to my surprise. And in the movie and in real life, it's based on his life. When he was diagnosed with ALS, they told him that he wouldn't live. But if he lived, he wouldn't ever be able to have any motor skills at all or speak again. And the movie portrays this brilliant mind of Stephen Hawking unable to communicate and get out what he's thinking. It's quite sad. My wife cried through the entire movie, like literally the entire movie. And it's so sad, and then it's triumphant and sad again and triumphant again. It's so sad this, that they, they portray him being locked in his own head as isolation and hell. Like everyone around him still loves him, but he can't communicate to them back. And when you start to not, you're trapped, you're trapped in your own brilliant mind, it feels like hell. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, calls hell this isolation drawn out to infinity. The Christian life, life with God, is a life of conversation. It's a life of interaction. It's a life of being, a, being able to communicate one to the other. It's God being able to communicate with you, and it's you being able to communicate with God. That's what the Christian life is. Um, one of, uh, a good commentator on John writes this. He says, the Christian life is a conversation, a dynamic relationship in which as a result of our new birth, the talking begins. God's word now becomes the medium of our relationship to and with it our talking develops an intimacy with profound social dimensions. Communication with God. Jesus prays that we would brought, be brought into the communication with God. Now, let me get real practical with you. Can I just ask you to begin and start to talk with God? This is called prayer, okay? Prayer, talking with God. Start with eight minutes in the morning. That's not that long, you know. You're on Facebook for like 45 minutes and it feels like eight. Okay? Eight minutes. Okay? So, so when you wake up, try not to grab your phone. Try to spend eight minutes, whether, whether you need to go away and like take a shower and grab coffee and sit down or wherever you're most alert. Get, get alone and spend eight minutes talking with God communing with God. It might be opening up a psalm in the scriptures and reading it and praying and asking God, God, would you speak to me this morning? And talking back to him. Maybe writing down some prayer requests, doing these things. Begin that conversation with God. Okay, that's, that's simple. Also do this. I don't know if you, if you keep calendar on your phone and like all these alerts pop in your phone. I know that that's like the worst thing in the world. But you, if you do that, you could use that to your advantage by setting reminders to 
take two minutes to walk outside and talk with God. Like just set three times a day. Where it just alerts your phone. Oh, like I don't, there's like these new apps where it's like time to stand up. You know that sort of thing. I'm like time to stand up. I'm like, oh, thank you. I'm an idiot and I don't know when it's time to stand up. But thank you for telling me it's time to stand up. <laughs> time to pray. It's literally time to pray. Like stand up and walk and talk with God. Commune with God and bring up to Him how how you're feeling. Disconnected, connected. Bring up how, what's going on, how you're approaching your, your work. Just acknowledge that God is there. This is life with God. And it, it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be to where you have to get away for five weeks and alone and quiet, you know, wearing rags or whatever. It's, you have to bring it into your life. Okay, so here's the implication. Jesus prays that we are brought into this open communication with God. You may say, I've tried to talk with God, but he's never talked back to me. I've tried. I've tried to talk with God, and he never talked back to me. Romans uh, 1 and 2 says that God speaks through creation. Meaning, there are moments of such beauty from creation that we know it's not just molecules and compounds. That God is there. In those moments, he is speaking to you. In those moments, you need to listen. Also, John 1 says that Jesus is the logos made flesh. Logos is a Greek word for word. He is the word of God made flesh, meaning that Jesus is the communication of God. If God said nothing else to you, Jesus' life shown to us as to how God feels about us would be enough. However, Jesus says in the middle of what we're talking about here that something greater is going to happen still, that he will give us the spirit of God to bring us in the communication and communion with God. And Jesus promises that this will happen. Communion and communication with God is the essence of the Christian life. Second thing is that not only is it the essence of Christian life, but it's the way that we're transformed. It's the way that God changes us. Being brought into the life of God, we are transformed by that. D.A. Carson, again, another great commentator in this, says this. And I think, I honestly think this is the, the point of the entire prayer. And he says it way, way, way better than I can. So I'm just going to read it. He says, the crucial point is that this text does not simply make these followers objects of God's love. It's not, it is that, but it's not simply that. But promises that they will be so transformed as God is continually made known to them that God's own love for his son will become their love. The love with which they learn to love is nothing less than the love amongst the persons of the Godhead. Read that again, because it might have blown your mind. The crucial point is, is that this text does not simply make these followers uh, the object of God's love, but promises that they will be so transformed as God is continually made known to them that God's own love for his son will become their love the love with which they learn to love is nothing less than the love amongst the persons of the Godhead. What he is saying is that when we are brought into this love, the love that God has for the Father becomes our love. And then we are transformed by God's love for us. So it's not simply that God loves us, and that's true. He does love us. You are loved by God. You are. Not we are. That's true. You are. And this love pulls us into God, and this love of God transforms us. And then we begin to love like God loves. 
and we begin to love each other the way the Father loves the Son, and then we begin to have the love of the Godhead in us. The way that God, the Father, Son, and Spirit love each other and then love the world is the way that we begin to love. So it's not a love defined by us or the way, if we feel it or not feel it. We're, we're given the very love of God, and this is the love that transforms us, and God's love transforms our loves. Over time, God's love reorders our loves as we're brought into divine love. And his love for us is the love that we share with one another. Now this is, I know this is so mystical. You're like, okay, but what are three steps to do that? This is so mystical, I can't, I, I just know that Jesus prays this for us and that we're brought into it and it transforms us. How it works, I can't tell you. It happens through success, it happens through failures, it happens through sin, it happens through repentance. It happens through presence. It happens through, not presence, that would be fun, presence. <laughs> it, hap that's, it, it happens. Mystically, we're brought into the Father. And we begin to love like him. It's mystical, but it's also identifiable. When the love is present, it's shown. Jesus says, it's, it's identifiable through our unity. When we begin to have the love of God in us, we will become unified. The goal isn't like, hey guys, let's just focus on unity. No, the goal is this. The hope is that we focus on being connected with the life of God. And that the love of God transformed us. And then the result, the fruit of abiding, the fruit is unity. And so it's identifiable if we are dwelling in the beloved of God, if we're unified. Does that make sense? We can't just like, let's just focus on unity. No, let's focus on being connected to the life of God together. And then unity will be an outflowing of it. Unity will be a fruit. And all people will know that you sent me, Father. Because the love they have for each other. Because they're brought into our love. And our love is transforming them and making them. That's transformation. Verse 26 talks about transformation. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love that you have for me may be in them. That's transformation. That the love that you have for me, Father, may be in them. And then we begin to love like the Father loves. That's what God promises here. That's what Jesus prays for here. Jesus has prayed for me. I pray for Dave that he would love his family and his church family and his neighbors and his city and his world the way that, Father, you have loved me. That's what Jesus prayed for me. And that's what Jesus prays for you. I pray that you would love each other the way the Father loves the Son. And that doesn't happen by you, all your effort, all your effort. It's, it happens as you're brought into this mystical relationship with God, in communication with God, in communion with God. There's a parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15 called the parable of lost son, or lost sons, really. It's traditionally called the prodigal son. Um, it's a father has a, a large estate. He has two sons, an older and a younger son. Uh, the younger son wants to spend all his dad's money, wants nothing to do with father, and leaves. Says, I want my inheritance now. I wish you were dead, in essence. And I want my inheritance now. And so the father does. Sells off half his property, gives it to his son. His son goes off to a faraway land and spends it all on sex and drugs and alcohol, and he wastes his entire inheritance, which was probably a lot of money. And he ends up eating from a 
from a pig trough. And he was Jewish, so eating with pigs is not kosher. <laughs> so he's eating with pigs, right? He's not eating pigs, he's eating with them, which is probably worse. And, and he's eating, they're slop. And he has this, he has like this come to Jesus moment. He has this like, oh my, he has like wakes up. He come, it, says, it literally says he comes to his senses. He's like, he thought, he had a logical thought. And he's like, okay, the, the servants in my dad's house are eating better than this. If I just went home and I became a servant, if I just went home and became like one of the people that takes care of the animals, I would get better than this. So that's what I'll do. I'll just go home and nobody has to be super mad at me. And he's going to probably reject me, but I'm like, Dad, I just want to work for you. Because I know if I work for you, I'll eat better than I was there. So he goes back home. And he says that while he was a long way off, the father saw him, meaning the father was waiting for him. And he runs to him and he tackles him. And this guy probably smelled like death. And he tackled him and he kissed him. And he put a robe over him, his robe. And he put sandals on his feet and he put a ring on his finger. He put a ring on his finger. When I do weddings, I usually say, you know, like, rings are circular because they signify eternity, which is not biblical at all because marriage is not for eternity. It's still death to you part, so that's not a thing. <laughs> so that usually goes over really well at weddings. <laughs> Don't invite me to your wedding, I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> I'll say what a ring signifies is this, is this Luke 15 parable. Like, I unconditionally love you. You may do the worst thing imaginable to me, and I will still love you. This is what the father does. He puts a ring on his finger and says, I'm still committed to you. I still love you. And then he comes home and he throws a huge party for his son. He has an older brother, and his older brother shows up, and he's like, there's a party going on. What's going on? And everybody starts telling him, your brother's home. Didn't you hear? Your brother, who spent half of your dad's in, uh, estate, is back, and your dad just threw him a party. And he gets so mad. He pulls his dad aside. He goes, what are you thinking? Why would you throw him a party? And he goes, are, what do you, could you come inside with me, please? Your brother was lost and now is found. He was dead, and he's now alive. Let's rejoice. I want you to come into this house and party with me. And then the story kind of ends and you don't know. And so you have this older son and younger son. And they're actually both disconnected from the father. One just like, I'm going to go away. I'm going to get as far as I can from you. And the other one says, I'm going to get as close as I can to you, but I won't be really near you. I don't want anything to do with you, but I'll stay real close to you. It's like the religious person. It's like, I'll stay close to church, but I want nothing to do with God. And that happens. People that I want nothing to do with God, I'm going to run from you. Both of those people the father has a heart for. Both of those people the father wants to bring into his home. He wants to bring them into his house of rejoicing. He loves the older son and the younger son the same. He wants them both in. And then you might identify. I don't know where you identify in there. The story ends because you're supposed to choose. Like, am I the father? Am I the, am I the, the, the older brother? Am I the younger brother? Am I trying to av avoid God by being really close to his stuff? Or am I trying to avoid God by just living like hell? How am I running away from God? That's how you're supposed to find the story. But once you're brought into the home, here's the thing. Once you're brought into the home, the implication is now you become like the father. Once you become part of the household, you, once you return to the father, there's an invitation to become the father. You become a part of his household. 
you become a part of his inheritance again. And the implications are you begin to love like the Father now. And now you, being in the Father's house, means it requires that we make the Father's life our own and are transformed into his image. Coming home, that's what the parable of the lost sons is all about. But this home in God changes us. This home in God transforms us so that in the home of God that there's unity in this church. And all people will know we're from God. And so we're in the Father's house and the Father's like, okay, now I'm going to transform you to love like I love. To where you can love the elder brother and the younger brother the same. So you're in a community group and God is changing your heart to love like the Father. And there's someone in your group that is this religious older brother. And they're the most legalist person that you've ever met. And you want nothing to do with them. The love of the Father would go, I... I you would go after them in love. Oh, there's the most clueless person who doesn't realize that there's so much riches in God and they're living like hell. The love, being in God's house means that you love them with the love of the Father. God's love transforms us. He brings us in. Today, the, gate, the gateway in is like this. You might find yourself in one of those camps, like, no, I'm living like hell. Or like, I'm really trying to avoid God by just being religious and doing good things. If I clean my life up, I don't have to approach God. I just know he's going to accept me anyways. If that's you, either one of those, come to God. That's the gateway in. Then what happens when you come to God is that you're transformed. Genuine love begins to penetrate your heart. Genuine love begins to transform you. And then what happens is that through this changed life, we become unified and the unity in the church becomes explainable only if Jesus is real. How, are you, how, how is this group of people who are all radically so different unified? Because Jesus was sent, that's why. And that's the only explanation that we have. Because Jesus was sent. I want to close with a reflection prayer um, written by Patriarch uh, Athen Orgus of Constantinople just because you know him so well. <laughs> um, but this is a great prayer to, to really end on and reflect on about it being our hope that once we're in the Father and we're home, that God would transform us where we wouldn't, we wouldn't, um, we would love with self-sacrificial love like God does. He says this. I have waged war, this war against myself for many years. It was terrible. But now I am disarmed. I am no longer frightened of anything because love banishes fear. I am disarmed of the need to be right and to justify myself by disqualifying others. I am no longer on the defensive, holding on to my riches. I just want to welcome and to share. I don't hold on to my ideas and projects. If someone shows me a better, something better, no, I shouldn't say something better but good. I accept them without any regrets. I no longer seek to compare. What is good, true, and real is always the best for me. For me the best. That is why I have no fear. When we are disarmed and disappointed of self, if we open our hearts to the God-man, who makes all things new, 
Then he takes away past hurts and reveals a new world where everything is possible.